The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer greatly from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. Then Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. God forbid, Lord, no such thing shall ever happen to you. He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an obstacle to me. You are thinking not as God does, but as human beings do. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What profit would there be for one to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Or what can one give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in his Father's glory, and then he will repay all according to his conduct. The Gospel of the Lord. For our gospel today, we are hearing the the continuation from last Sunday where Jesus takes the disciples to the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asks them the basic question, who do you say I am? And he's just asking the disciples, what's the average Joe say about me? What is he saying? Is he, who am I? And the answers they give are inadequate. They say, well, some say that you're like John the Baptist or... Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. It's, it's not really addressing like who he is. So when he asked the question to them specifically, well, you who've been with me, who've lived with me, who have served with me, who have done all this stuff with me, who do you say I am? And Peter just chirps right up. He says, well, you're, you're the Christ. You're the son of man. You're the son of God. And it's from that point that Jesus changes his name from Simon to Peter that he informs him that the church will be built upon him as the rock and that he's given the authority to bind and loose things in heaven and earth. So immediately following this grand proclamation, he reminds the disciples, okay, I have to go, I have to still suffer, I'm going to be turned over and killed, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be raised up, don't worry. And Peter, who's thinking, I have this new job, says... No, God forbid, Lord, that's never going to happen. And Jesus rebukes him. The guy he just gave the authority to, the guy he just changed the name for, the guy he just said, I'm going to build the rock of the church upon you, he says, get behind me, Satan. You're like, whoa, (laughs) that's kind of intense. So I think what that bears well for us is to actually look at the other encounters Peter has with Jesus really briefly. So I I did my best, I did my little, um, in my software program, I typed Peter in to my scripture passage to see where his name pops up, and this is what I found, at least from the Gospel of Matthew. So the very first encounter Peter has is when Jesus calls him, calls him and Andrew, they're on the sea, he says, follow me, they immediately drop their nets, they go after him, okay. Second is when He gives authority to those 12 disciples. He says, I give you authority over unclean spirits, cast them out, heal every disease and every infirmity. The name of the 12 are these. First, Simon, who is Peter, and then on and on and on. Third encounter 
is when Jesus appears to the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, and they think it's a ghost. Like, oh no, we're afraid. He's like, don't be afraid. And Peter says, if it's really you, Lord, tell me to come, and I'll come to you on the water. And he says, all right, Peter, come here. And he starts walking, then he starts to sink, and then he gets pulled out of the water. Fourth encounter is when what we just heard last weekend, where Peter is given all of this new authority and responsibility. The fifth encounter is today, right, when he says, like, Lord, this is never going to happen to you. And he says, get behind me, Satan, you're an obstacle to me. The next one that occurs is the transfiguration. He invites Peter, James, and John up to the mountain to see. And Peter is so enthralled by what he encounters, this glimpse of heaven. He says, Lord, it is so good that we're here. Let me build three booths and we can stay here forever. And in the midst of that, the voice comes and says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. After that, uh, there's this question that Peter proposes about forgiveness, like, how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother? Is it seven times? And Jesus says, no, it's not seven, but 77 times. So this idea that we forgive infinitely, we, we forgive continuously. After that, uh, this question about, like, what does it mean to follow you? Like, we've followed you. There's this cost and this reward. And so um, he basically says, like, for those that have followed me, like, you're going to have this great reward. It's a hundredfold in heaven. Because Peter's like, well, we've given up everything for you. So Jesus just shows them, like, what's to come. After that, they have uh, the scene and right before Jesus is arrested. And, and this is kind of an intense part where Peter declares to Jesus, like, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, this very night before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter says to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. What happens right after that? He denies him. What happens right after that? He's redeemed. So if you think about all of Peter's interactions, those are probably fairly relatable for us, that we've all been given a calling, that at some point Jesus said, come, follow after me. We're like, okay, cool. And then Jesus gives us maybe a mission or an authority or responsibility. But then within that, we've probably also questioned, we've probably doubted, we've probably been amazed, and we've probably rejected but also been redeemed by God. So that whole background is there for us to think about what is really being said today in this gospel. Back to last week's question of who do we say Jesus is? What does Jesus leave for his church? And so we, Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. He leaves this teaching authority. And now he has to continue with his plan. And Jesus conclusively presents his intended mission here. The world and the church even, initially, take offense at the idea of the cross. That's what they're truly rejecting, right? And who's the church? The church in this situation is the disciples. It's Peter, right? But in, in reality, the church is people, all of us, who wish to some way maybe escape suffering as much and as long as possible. It's probably not a natural instinct for us to say, suffering, woo, I can't wait. Right? Suffering is probably one of those things that's like, I'd rather not. And so there's this bold claim outside of Christianity, like all other religions, that they try to avoid suffering, right? How can man flee from suffering? But as Christians... We're actually called to embrace suffering. 
We're called to accept the suffering as it comes. I'm not saying that we need to go out and like find suffering. Suffering will come to us. But when it comes, do we flee from it or do we embrace it? Do we reject it or do we accept it? And that's what's happening, right? Jesus is saying, like, this is what has to happen. And Peter's like, I don't want you to suffer, Lord. He's trying to run from it. He's trying to reject it. When, in fact, Jesus is saying, no, we need to receive this. So Christ, if you think about Christ himself, right, becomes man in order to suffer in reality. And he suffers more than any other person has ever suffered. He And he suffers in such a way that it actually brings salvation for us. That the suffering shows purpose. It shows meaning. And so for him, in in the eyes of Jesus, whoever hinders that reality becomes his opponent. Which is why he says what he says to Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Because Satan wants us to reject suffering. Satan wants us to run from suffering. Satan wants us to seek out all the pleasures of the world and not accept the cross and suffering. So Christ doesn't say later on, like, rejoice that I suffer for you. Instead, he says, take up your cross out of love for me and on behalf of your brothers and sisters for whose salvation we must suffer. Without the cross, we have no salvation. Without the particular crosses we bear, others actually don't have salvation, which is kind of beautiful to think about that we get to cooperate in salvation. And so there's no way of salvation except through Jesus, except through the cross. And so again, I can either reject it, run from it, seek out other things that actually will not bring me satisfaction, or I can embrace it and endure it and actually unite it to him who gives the greatest satisfaction. Something for us to consider in the midst of this, think about, has anyone ever heard of that old adage, like there's no I in team? One person, okay. Two people, three people, four people, okay. I'm just making sure you're awake. You looked a little tired, not sure. So yeah, there's no I in team, right? You think about teams that require the group. Now, you know, sometimes a person has to suffer. They have to play a position they don't want to play or they have to do something they don't want to do in order that for the team to succeed. If we think about our faith as a giant team, right? Christianity is a big old team, right? Sometimes there's things that we have to do. So our salvation does not consist in eliminating our I, our individuality, but in sacrificing our individuality and in sacrificing the I for others. And this can't take place without pain and the cross. So the cross is found precisely in consistent obedience to God. Being obedient to God means we will take on a cross. And Jeremiah experiences that in the first reading. He experiences this concept of suffering, right? He's there to proclaim God's message. And he understands that the world is going to be destroyed. It's going to see some type of destruction And no one will believe him. He goes so far to say that God has even duped him. That his mission is an utter failure. A Christian, all of us, we must speak. 
And we must speak to the truth of the church. We must speak to the truth of Jesus Christ. We must speak to the truth of the gospel. And when we do this, when we speak to this truth, we can be exposed to people's mockery. There's a great temptation then to actually say nothing, to let the world just run its course, let the destruction just occur, just let it go down and just watch it all crumble around us. We can even at times say the world is heading towards destruction. Why bother telling anyone anyway? It's not going to change. But this is the thing, and it happened with Jeremiah. If we say nothing, then that silence actually begins to burn within us. It begins to uh, motivate us and turn us into something else. And it did that for Jeremiah. The message must be shared about Christ, about God, about redemption, about salvation. Standing up to the hail of contempt and mockery is in the end nothing other than following Christ. Being able to embrace well the condensation of the world is just being a follower of Christ. And Paul further encourages that in his letter to the Romans. Right? The Christian's lifelong task is in the light of God's mercy to offer themselves bodily as a living and holy sacrifice. We offer ourselves for the church, on behalf of the church, for others, as a living and holy sacrifice. When we devote our entire life to the cause of God, Christ transforms our existence into a single liturgical celebration. Think about that, right? In the Mass, what we're doing right here today and every day is we offer a sacrifice. The bread and the wine that's brought forward is then transfigured, right? Transfigured. Transubstantiation. It's transfigured into the real body and blood of Jesus Christ. It becomes the living sacrifice. And as we come forward as his disciples, we receive his body and blood and become then the walking living sacrifice that goes back out into the world. Christian existence, if lived according to God's word and in imitation of Christ, is thereby both get this, a sermon and a sacrifice to the world. Our lives become a living sermon, a testimony, a witness, and a sacrifice for others if we live according to God's word and his imitation. Last week I, I had hit on the precepts of the church, right? The five things that are the bare minimum to do to grow in life, to grow in spiritual life with God and with each other. That's go to mass every week, every holy day of obligation, and rest on the Sabbath. This is what's asked of us at a minimum, to receive the Eucharist at least once a year. Note, not every single Mass. So if I'm not in a state of grace, don't receive communion. But to receive communion at least once a year within the Easter season. To go to confession at least once a year. At a minimum, to grow in life with the church. To practice fasting and abstaining, and to then provide for the needs of the church. This is the minimum we are asked to do. And so for each of us, for each person, we must actually examine, have a self-examination to see whether or not we are saying yes to what others would say is the scandal of the cross. 
Am I willing to say yes to living the cross? Am I willing to say yes to present the truth of Christ to the surrounding world? Am I willing to say yes and face mockery and ridicule and rejection? So this can be summarized into a couple questions for ourselves. What does God want me to do? What is God asking me to do? And if you're thinking, I don't know how to find that answer, I'm going to give you a hint. We find this answer by going to the church when it's quiet. By coming to the place of worship when it's silent. Because it's in the silence we can with greater clarity hear God speaking to us. For too long we've, we've had that voice, that inner voice of God. We've allowed other voices to to drown him out. We've allowed other voices to over-encompass him. And we, we need to practice hearing his voice again. And so we do so in the silence. So what does God want me to do? I don't know. But he wants you to at least start to hear his voice again. So go to the church when it's quiet, when it's dark, when you're by yourselves. And just sit with him. How does Jesus want me to behave? Well, he wants me to embrace suffering. He wants me to, to take up my cross. He wants me to do the things that are difficult and challenging. He wants me to share the truth of who he is, even if it means I'm rejected because it could lead to someone else's salvation. And this is the thing. We might say, you know, what you ask is hard, Lord. Yeah, yeah, it is. Christianity's hard. But it's not something that we do by ourselves. The reality is this. Jesus could probably say to every single one of us, myself included, at some point in our lives, get behind me, Satan. Because at some point in all of our lives, we have probably been an obstacle. We've probably not said something we should have said. We've probably been afraid of a person's response. We've probably been afraid of being rejected. But that's because we're not thinking as God does. We're thinking as humans do. We're thinking that I want to be liked. I want to be accepted. And that's really hard. On Friday, I came out of the confessional. I was getting ready for Mass, and adoration was going on. And it was beautiful because the front part of the church had probably like 15, 20 people here. And they're just adoring the Lord. And I'm thinking to myself, Lord, that's all for you. They're here for you. And it made me think of this question, why do people fill churches? Why do people even show up? Hopefully, it's because they want to encounter God, because they want to receive Jesus, because they recognize that there's some type of satisfaction that only God can provide that the world actually can't. But it also led to this other question. Why do people not fill churches? Why do people not come here? Why do people avoid this? And it's because perhaps... They're seeking satisfaction in someplace else, somewhere else, something else. So what does God want me to do? Yeah, he wants, us, he wants us to take our cross up. He wants us to deny ourselves. He wants us to follow him. And just like Peter, who we saw do all these things, right? He, he says yes to the Lord. He follows after him. He's given this amazing responsibility. He also denies him. Peter isn't, at the end, cast out. Peter's, Peter's actually elevated. 
And so there's great hope for us that we can become elevated, even in the times we've rejected God, that we can actually turn back to him, that we can be reconciled to him. He wants me to, to hear his voice, and that begins by seeking out the silence. He wants me to behave in a way that my life becomes an entire sermon for others, that I follow the word of God in such a way that there's no question or doubt about who and what I stand for with the church. And of course it's going to be hard, but I need God in the midst of that. I need his aid in the midst of that. And so I follow the church's precepts, the bare minimum at least, to grow in love and relationship with him. And I fill the church because I'm seeking a satisfaction that nothing else can satisfy me with. So our challenge for the week is to find that time to go and be alone with him. To go and be quiet with him. To come and relearn what his voice sounds like. So that when I face all of this other stuff, I do it with a joy. I do, I do it with a confidence. I do it with a, a certitude that it's his voice and not the voice of the world. That it's his satisfaction and not the satisfaction of others. The Lord has a great gift for us. And it's time for us to start accepting that gift.